Father, we thank you as ever for the opportunity to come to your word. You are so gracious to us in that you not only created us, you not only made us, Lord, but you have revealed yourself to us. You've shown us to shown us yourself and your glory throughout the world in the incredible diversity and beauty of this entire creation of yours, Lord. And we are so blessed to live in a place where all we have to do is walk outside and we are overwhelmed by your artistic genius, by your brilliance, by your glory, Lord, as the trees clap their hands, as the rivers shout. Father, we thank you that you've also revealed yourself to us in a way that we can know and understand who you are, why you made us, what you are doing here in this world, and what our role is, what we are here for. Lord, we thank you for your word, and I pray that we would take it seriously as we look at it today. In Christ's name, amen. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to John 21. John 21. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 23 in particular, but I'm going to pick up my reading in verse 15 and read the story that we looked at last week. Again, the story of of Jesus speaking to Simon Peter about whether or not Peter loves him, and if he loves him, what Peter ought to do with that love. And if you remember what I said last week, is that Peter must focus his life on Jesus. He must fulfill the life that Jesus has given to him and that Jesus commanded him in this way. So let's pick up in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, You will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Okay, we're going to look at this in three parts this morning. And first off, First off, we're going to talk about a sober moment here. So our first point, if you want to write it down, is a sober moment. And we pick that up in verse 18. So Jesus gives Peter a foreshadowing here of how he's going to die, which that's sobering enough. But let's dig into this a little bit more. You may remember back in John 13, if you want to flip back to John 13 real quick, 
There was a moment that happened in John 13, beginning in verse 36, between Jesus and Peter. And I want us to read that real quick. John 13, beginning in verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So in that moment, back in John 13, Peter boldly and blindly promised that he would die for Jesus. So we can see now, looking at it, we can see now that in this moment, it was Peter's pride. It was his pride that drove him in saying that. I will lay down my life for you. His certainty that he would die for Jesus, what was that based in? I think as we see the story, the certainty that he would die for Jesus was based in his confidence in himself. His confidence in what he would be able to do in that moment. This is what he, Peter, would do for Jesus. So behind these words here, you might hear this subtext. You might hear Peter saying, Jesus, you can count on me. You can count on me. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to let you down. Now, if you read the other Gospels, you can also get a hint there that what Peter is saying is, these guys might but I'm not going to let you down. And then a lot happens to Peter, doesn't it? But the thing that happens to Peter is that he discovers that Jesus can't count on him. He denies Jesus three times, just like Jesus said he would. Far from being willing to lay down his life for Jesus, as he said, he is afraid the first time a young girl asks him if he even knows Jesus. And so now we fast forward to after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, and Jesus drives that point home with these three questions. Do you love me? And by the end of it, by the third question, Peter's grieved. We hope he also understands, though, what's happening here. Jesus is driving home with the three questions that match the three denials that Peter, in and of himself, is not who he thought he was. No, Peter, it's a fair question for Jesus to ask you this three times because you let him down. You denied him. You hid. And then what does Jesus do? After Peter says three times, you know I love you. Then what does Jesus do? Jesus brings it full circle from that moment in John 13, 36. When he said, I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus comes back and says, will you lay down your life for me? He tells Peter here that in fact, yes, Peter, you will lay down your life for me. You will die for me. This is such a sober moment. Jesus just told him how he would die. And then do you see what Jesus did? He told him how he would die. And then he said, follow me. Knowing that, follow me. Knowing what it will cost you, the call is still there. 
Don't turn away from it. Follow Jesus to that moment, to that death. So we saw last week that the focus for Peter must be on Jesus. Does he love Jesus? That's what matters. Does he love Jesus? Will he spend his life for Jesus? Will he obey Jesus? If if he loves Jesus, will he follow him? Even when Jesus says, your death is at the end of following me. Are you going to do that? Follow me, he commands. So the beautiful thing here in this moment, this is a sober moment, but the beautiful thing, I mean, we have the whole Bible. The beautiful thing is not necessarily Peter here in this moment, as we're going to see. Peter's actually not beautiful at all in this moment. But after the Spirit comes at Pentecost, the beautiful thing is to see the change in Peter. In fact, if you go to 1 Peter, the first letter that Peter wrote, and you go to 1 Peter chapter 3, you see a different Peter there than the proud Peter who said, I will lay down my life for you. And you see a different Peter there than the Peter that we're about to look at here who goes, well, hey, what about John? What's happening with him? You go to 1 Peter chapter 3, and, and there you see a Peter who is encouraging the church encouraging other believers to respond to persecution and to respond to slander by looking to Christ who suffered as well. Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. This Peter gets it. This Peter understands what was happening in John 20, 21 with Jesus. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for one thing, for the will of God. Peter understood his command was to feed my sheep, to follow me, even to death. And so Peter, older Peter, Peter with the Spirit, encourages other believers, arm yourselves and follow Christ. Be willing. This is what, the, the amazing thing about Peter, and with, uh, this is a total aside, but a Bible study I would encourage you to do that can be very encouraging is to don't, don't cheat. Other people have done this before. Don't cheat. Do it for yourself. Find every reference to Peter in the New Testament. Every single one of them. List them all out. Get them all in front of you. And then go through and read everything that the New Testament says about Peter. It can be so encouraging. <coughs> because this is what Jesus can do to you. This is the power that Jesus has to take someone like Peter and change him. So we should be encouraged first and foremost. I want to start off on a, this is a sobering moment, but I want to start off on an encouraging moment as well because this is what Jesus did for Peter. This is the kind of thing Jesus does for his children. This is the kind of thing Jesus does for his followers. You may look and you may see a lot of pride and stubbornness in you. Do not give up. This is what Jesus does. He changes us. 
we sang earlier the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. One of the reasons I wanted to sing that is because of the story that's behind that song. You, you might know the story of a martyr going to his death is the one who penned those particular words. Gives a different feel to it, doesn't it? Recognizing that in the choice between life and death, what's the decision? From the choice between living or dying, the decision is the same. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. If it takes you here or it takes you there, it doesn't matter. Follow Jesus. And so we see that here. We see this in this sobering moment. But let's step back from older, mature, godly Peter. And let's jump back to young Peter here on the shore, learning that he's actually going to lay down his life, that that is actually going to happen. His bold words, Jesus is feeding them back to him here and saying, no, Peter, what you said, you know, before I died, oh, that's happening still. What a sobering moment. And it brings us to our second point here. So our second point is this. What about him? The danger of focusing on others. What about him? So in light of this heavy conversation, and it's kind of interesting the way that John even words it, Jesus says, follow me. What are the very next words? So Peter turned. That's kind of ironic, right? Follow me. And he's like, okay. But what about him? He immediately does not do what he was told to do. <coughs> he turns and he sees John behind him. And John says more here than that he's just the beloved disciple. John clarifies it this way. John says, The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? So I think what John is doing here is I think he's establishing for us something about Peter and John. First off, he emphasizes he was the one who was leaning against Jesus at the meal, showing that John was very close to Jesus, that John was very intimate with Jesus. If Jesus had asked last week whether Peter loves him more than the other disciples, which he did, then in Peter's mind, probably the top disciple or pretty close to the top of the list of the people that Peter wants to be clear, I love you more than this guy, it's going to be John. It's going to be John. You also might remember another piece from that story of the Last Supper there. It was Peter who signaled to John to ask that question. You know, I've mentioned, I mentioned, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, I think it was the week before I mentioned that John gives us glimpses into the relationship that he and Peter have. And sometimes it's funny, right? He made sure that, that the world knew he beat Peter in a foot race. You know, he seems to be making a crack at Peter when he points out that Peter threw himself into the sea when they were really like almost ashore anyway. Ruth actually pointed out another way to me this week. And I just thought this was funny. Like all of the, I mean, one of these by themselves, and you'd be like, Kevin, you might be reading into it, but I was like, come on, man. There's a lot of things here. So let, let me read how each of the four gospel writers tell the story of Jesus' arrest. You remember that night, that night when Jesus got arrested and one of the soldiers got his ear cut off? Here's how Matthew tells it. Matthew tells it here in Matthew 26, verses 50, uh, verse 51. Matthew says, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. That's how Matthew tells the story. Here's how Mark tells it in Mark 14, 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Here's how Luke tells it in Luke 22, verse 50. 
And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now, do you know how John tells the story? You think John used one of those who were with him did this? No, no. John says Peter did it. Peter's the one who cut off the guy's ear. The other disciples, they're all careful. They're all circumstantial. Hey, you know, we're going we're gonna, to you know, let Peter get by. We're not going to embarrass him. And Peter, John's like, no, no, guys, come on. It was Peter. He did it. Y'all know Peter? Peter's a guy I beat in the foot race. He did it. He cut off their, his ear. It was him. And it, would just, it would be amazing, I think, to spend some time with Peter and John and to see the way that, that they relate to each other. And here in a moment, when Peter should have been entirely and completely focused on Jesus, that's not what happens. He sees John. He sees John, his brother, his friend, his rival. And he says, what about him? If I'm going to die, what, what about him? And so Jesus' response helps us to understand how to read Peter's motivation in asking this. Because if you look at Jesus' response, it's rebuking. And so we realize here that Peter's question is not mere curiosity. This isn't just simple curiosity about what's going to happen to John. There's that lingering pride. There's that competitive attitude. He is not focused on Jesus the way he should have been. Because he's also thinking about John. He said, if I'm going to die, please tell me he's going to die too. In other words, he's a man, right? He's just a human being. He's distracted by things that really shouldn't matter. But they do. And Jesus' response is a shot right across the bow. Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. What is that to you? So let's take this question seriously. In the grand scheme of things, what is it really to Peter, whatever Jesus does with John? I mean, doesn't Peter know? Doesn't Peter understand this? That Jesus chose him? That Jesus will take him home? That the Son of God who came to earth called Peter's name and loved Peter and made Peter his own, that the Lord would choose him and use him for his own glory? The real question is, what more could Peter want than Jesus making him his own? Isn't it just so easy, though, for us to be distracted in exactly this way? When we should be looking at Jesus, we should be focused on him, our eyes keep going to other believers. Peter gets some hard news to swallow from Jesus, and instead of keeping his eyes on Jesus and on his relationship with Jesus and on what Jesus might do with him and how Jesus will use him and how Jesus will ultimately bring him home through whatever he's doing, he immediately starts thinking about John and whether he's going to be treated the same. Will Jesus do that to him? Will he do better? Will he do worse? <clears throat> and this is how we are. So often we compare our lives to others. 
How come they got to do that? Why did this happen to me and not to them? What's going on here? You know, comparison about anything does not produce good fruit in Christians. It just doesn't. Comparing our lives to others, comparing our ministries to others, comparing our suffering to others, comparing our inadequacies even to others. There is no end to the way that we will compare ourselves to others. In every step of life, we'll find new ways to compare our situation to someone else's. What good does that produce? Generally, I think on the spectrum, it's going to produce either some form of bitterness or some form of pride. Somewhere in between those two, bitterness and pride. Bitterness because in your mind, everybody else is getting a better deal than you are. They're getting a better life than you are. They're getting treated better than you are, and they have better results than you have. And you become bitter about it because you're focused on them and what's happening with them. <coughs> Sorry. Or pride because you look and you think, I've done better than they have. And usually that's kind of the way we feel. I am able to do this like Peter. I will lay down my life for you. So the real reason I want to say that, just to be clear, is not so that I can make you feel guilty. If you feel guilty about it, you ought to consider that. But what I really want to do is I want us to make sure that we see that the real result of comparison is this. It's not just bitterness and it's not just pride. The real result of comparisons is that it distracts us. It pulls our eyes away from where they ought to be. And like Peter, when Jesus says, follow me, and in his next step, he turns, we can be the same way. And it distracts us. I want to think about three things that comparisons distract us from here real quick. Three things that comparisons distract us from. First, Comparisons distract us from how God intends to use us. <coughs> Jesus told Peter that if he loved him, then he has work to do. He has things to do. He has a life that should be lived, and it should be lived for Jesus. <coughs> but if he spends all of his time dwelling on what God is doing with others, then he is certainly not using his gifts to bring God glory. He's wasting his time and he is wasting his gifts on self-centered thinking. It's distracting him from what God intends to do through him. What, let, me, let me just make sure I, I clarified that. What God, the creator of the universe, the one who holds Peter in his hands, who holds Peter's future in his hands, it's not like Peter's going to be able to do anything for himself anyway. You remember when Peter tried to go fishing? He couldn't catch a thing until Jesus came along and said, hey, throw it on the other side. <coughs> it's not like you're going to be able to do anything apart from God anyway. And yet, we're distracted because we're not looking at God, we're looking at others. 
Sorry, apparently my throat is turning into a desert. It's okay, I'm not, I'm not bitter about the fact that all of you, your throats feel nice. I'm just kidding. <clears throat> so that's the first way it, it, God intends to use us. Another way that it distracts us, it distracts us from the joy we get in seeing God work in others. It distracts us. Comparison distracts you from the joy that you could get from seeing God at work in others. What God is doing in the Christians around you is amazing. Here in this church, there are amazingly beautiful stories being told of how God is growing His children, of God holding His children fast, of God using His children. <clears throat> also, there are Christians around you that need you. And I'm saying this to everyone. There are Christians around you that need you to stop fixating on yourself and fixating on comparing yourself to them. And they need you to just love them. They need you to have compassion towards them. They need you to pray for them. But when all we can think about is either that we are jealous of them or we're looking down on them or we're just constantly comparing our situation to theirs, we can't do what we're called to do with joy and peace in our hearts. It brings division even into our hearts. <clears throat> Instead of comparing ourselves to others, though, we could love Jesus. We could trust that the Spirit, the same Spirit that is at work in me, is at work in you. And that God knows what He's doing with those around you. And you could bring glory to God by recognizing what He's doing in the people around you. Praising Him for it. You know, it's funny. So I, I've often thought, just practically speaking, the majority of the time it's not hard for us to weep with those who weep. Sometimes it is. And do you know when it's hard for us to weep with those who weep? Almost always it's hard for us to weep with those who weep when we just had something really good happen and we want people to be happy for us and then we find out that we have to weep with somebody who had something hard happen. That's pretty much probably the hardest time it is to weep with somebody who weeps because well, we just had something really good happen. Which points right to the comparison game, doesn't it? It's, it's harder for us to rejoice with those who rejoice. But that's what we're called to do, and we can. Here's how. Follow Jesus. Recognize that the God who knit you together in your mother's womb, who wrote the number of your days down, who knows the number of the hairs on your head, recognize that He knows you. You follow Him. And if our eyes are fixed on Jesus, then we're excited to see Jesus at work in others. Why? Because we're excited about Jesus. We're excited about what He's doing in their life. That's hard though, isn't it? Man, it's almost like you have to die to yourself to do something like that. Comparison, you know, it, it, it can... 
it can destroy churches too. You look around and you see what other churches have that we don't. I'll tell you, we're in danger of that here. Fortunately, fortunately so far, I think we have all just been amazingly gracious, amazingly flexible. I can't tell you how thankful I am for everybody's attitude. But I'll tell you that there are nights when I, when I laid in, in bed and I think, man, some people in the city have really nice church buildings. Man, it'd be a whole lot easier if we had one of them nice church buildings. Comparison. I, I think one of the, the, the classic examples of the destructive power of comparison is from Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3, verse 10, the second temple, the foundation of it was built. Listen to how Ezra tells this story. He says, And when the builders laid the foundations of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundations of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Now I want you to zero in on those priests and Levites and the the heads of, of houses in the middle of the rejoicing and singing. Instead of happiness, what are they doing? They're weeping. And they're not just weeping, but they're weeping loudly. They're causing a scene with their weeping. Why? Because they're comparing the second temple to the first one, and they find it lacking. This temple is not as great as that one was. Now, one of the prophets of the day here, when this was happening, was a man named Zechariah. And Zechariah calls out these priests. When he writes in Zechariah chapter 4, he says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. Whoever despised the day. So he's talking about those those men. He's talking about the, the ones who were weeping because they saw the first temple. And now in the second temple, they're despising it. But <coughs> I want you to want to make sure that you see. Thank you guys for coughing, by the way. It makes me feel better. <coughs> I want you guys to see that what is it that they're despising? Your initial answer might be what they're despising is the foundation of the second temple, but that's not what they're despising. They're despising what God has done. They're despising what God chose to do. They're despising God's choice in having the second temple be less earthly glorious 
than the first one. And Zechariah says that will not stand. It will be clear. Then you will know. And there's an irony here, isn't it? Because they were comparing. What what were they doing here? They were comparing one thing that God had done to something else that God had done. Do you see that? What they're really doing is they're comparing one of God's works against another of God's works. That's what's behind this. We think that we're comparing ourselves to other people and their lives. We think we're comparing my, I'm comparing my life to your life. But in actuality, that's not what you're doing. You're comparing one of God's works to another of God's works. That makes no sense. If God chose to do a great thing back then, and he chose to do a smaller thing today, is it any less glorious? Is it any less perfect? Is it any less exactly the right thing that should have happened? Of course not, because it was God who did it. So when you and I are tempted to compare our lives to others, make sure you remember this. What you're really doing is you're comparing one of God's choices to another of God's choices. Rejoice in what he is doing. Have confidence in who he is. Christian, Jesus is enough for us. He's got us. The third way that this distracts us, and this this gets to the heart of it, comparison distracts us from our relationship to our shepherd. Comparison distracts us from our relationship. This is the heart of John 21. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Fix your heart and your mind on him. If you are his child, there is no need for comparison at all. If you're his child and you trust him, and who he is, you trust what he's doing, you have seen the vision of God laid out in front of us of a kingdom that's coming without end, where there will be no weeping. There will be this beautiful feast. There will be worship unlike anything we can imagine. If your confidence is in Jesus, There's no need for comparison at all. Let Jesus do what he will do with you. He's got you. Do you know what Jesus has made you into? My question, what is that to you, Christian? What is that to you? You are now a perfectly righteous, holy child of God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Go read Romans 8 again, and you'll see the list there of all the things that will not separate you from the love of God. 
So when you're tempted like Peter to turn and go, but what about what's happening with them? Why can't that happen with me? I would rather have that life than this one. Go read Psalm 139 again and be reminded the life that you have, if you have Jesus, your confidence is in him. He is your shepherd. He's guiding you through. He takes you through the valley of the shadow of death and he will. And then he'll take you through another one and he will be there with you throughout. And he will strengthen and comfort you. So love Jesus and don't covet his life or her life or their lives. Love Jesus and don't covet. He says, you, singular, follow me, singular. You follow me. There is an aspect of our walk with the Lord that is entirely focused on us and Christ. He called you by name. Now, of course, we emphasize a lot that we are saved into the church. There's another aspect where you are saved into the body, into the community. You can't separate yourself from the bride of Christ and the people of God. There's no Lone Ranger Christians. But at the same time, what we have to see is Jesus is your Lord, Christian. And it doesn't matter what he's doing with somebody else. He is your Lord. You follow Him. Even as we live with one another. And the beauty is, when we can win against that desire in our hearts to compare, we will discover, one, a much deeper relationship with the Lord. So much more confidence. We'll see Him at work. And then I guarantee you, I promise you, you also will discover joy and peace. When you start looking at other people like they are God's workmanship. And what God is doing in them is beautiful. Because you bring glory to God. Your focus is on God. This brings us to a very interesting third part to our story here. Verse 23. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So this almost makes me laugh. <clears throat> what happens here? Because the, the Bible is about real life. The Bible is very real. The other disciples can't mind their own business. And they take this conversation and they end up spreading a story that's close to right, but is entirely and completely wrong. Have you ever heard that happen before? This is what people do when they're not minding their own business. And when they're more into minding other people's business than theirs. They grab what snippets they can. They fixate on the one thing that they think they can understand. And then they spread it. Hey, did y'all hear about John? Jesus said he's never going to die. That's what I heard. I heard it. Well, I didn't really hear it. He heard it, but he told me and I trust him. It's crazy, isn't it? This is what people do. This is how rumors start, and one apparently started here. This was a conversation that was supposed to be between Peter and Jesus. And it was supposed to be about Peter and Jesus. 
Peter then decides to include John in it, which should never have happened. And then the disciples start speculating on it because they're like, oh, Peter's in there. I guess we should be in there too. <coughs> and they create this rumor that John is never going to die. And John wants to clear it up. He wants to clear it up in his gospel. He says, Jesus never said that. And then he says, this is exactly what Jesus said. No speculation, no rumor. But he had to speak up to stop the rumor. Which would never have happened if the other disciples hadn't taken their eyes off of what they should have been doing and decided to make John and Peter's business their business. So what we really get here from this story are two examples of what happens when a follower of Jesus stops focusing on Jesus. Peter has the opportunity to focus on Jesus, and this would have been a precious and a beautiful moment. And instead, he starts focusing on John, and he gets rebuked for it. Then the disciples could have just eaten their breakfast and gone on into the book of Acts and founded the, gospel, you know, founded the church, worked through the Spirit, all of this wonderful thing. But instead, they started speculating about a conversation that didn't concern them. We know that these disciples were all concerned about who was the greatest among them. They were all looking for the hierarchy. They were all comparison, com comparing each other. I lost. I wanted to say comparison shopping, but I don't think that works. They all had fallen into the trap of comparing themselves to each other to say, who's the greatest? Who's the most? And so, you know, here's a conversation. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Peter and John over there, that's our business too. But it wasn't their business. Their business was to focus on Jesus. Peter's business was to focus on Jesus. Not to start a wild rumor about John. So Christian, who do you compare yourself to? Do you stop and do you consider what Jesus has done for you? Do you daily remember his mercies are new every morning for you. Christian, do you see the love of God for you and does it overwhelm you? That he would love you. That he would call you, save you, make promises to you. When you are tempted, to compare your life to another's. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel of who God is and what he has done on your behalf for you. If we have our eyes fixed on Christ and we are overwhelmed by the gospel message, of forgiveness through Christ and His sacrifice for you, 
That's our protection against comparing ourselves to others. That's what keeps us focused. So what's the point here from the end of the Gospel of John? I have one more sermon next week. But as the story moves into the events of the book of Acts, there's one principle above all others for the disciples here. After the resurrection, and as we go into church history, the principle is this, and it still applies. Follow Jesus alone. You follow Now, he gives us ways to do this. He gives us, here he gave the apostles. The Christians were to follow the apostles as the messengers of Christ. He gives us the word. How do you know? You follow him because he's given you the word. In the church, he's given us elders. He's given us preachers. In families, he's given us parents. But for that to all work the way that it should work, for for that to all happen the way that it should happen, first the apostles had to follow Jesus alone because if the apostles went into the book of Acts still just focused on themselves and comparing to each other and then the church was to follow them, it'd be chaos. And today... For our leaders, whether they be pastors, whether they be parents, we have to follow Jesus because He uses us to feed and strengthen one another. So, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and you can have confidence. The song we're about to sing drives home for us the confidence that you can have. You don't need to compare your life to another's. You don't need to compare your situation to another's. You don't need to to compare your inadequacies to somebody else's adequacies. Why? Because he has you and he will hold you fast. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for Peter and how you dealt with Peter and how you loved Peter, and how you were patient with Peter, and how you changed Peter. It is such an encouragement to us to fix our eyes upon you, Lord. May we follow you. May we not be distracted by becoming jealous and covetous of what you are doing in other people's lives, but Lord, Help us to have our eyes so fixed on you that when we see you at work in other people's lives, that's what we see. We see you at work. And we praise you. And we rejoice in you. Lord, help us to not despise your work in others because it's not in us. But that our eyes would be so filled with the glory of Christ and your love for us that we would live a life of faithfulness and joy in you. In Christ's name. Amen.